Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Happy Friday, everyone. I uh, was hoping to get this on LinkedIn, but it's actually saying not approved. So maybe next time. So this week brings me great pleasure to be chatting with an old mate from Fox Sports, Andy Raymond. How are you, Andy? I'm good, Hawk, and, and the pleasure's all mine, I've got to say, mate. A very pleasant surprise to hear from you and uh, very much looking forward to, to what follows. Awesome. Yeah, so I was I was listening to your podcast, which we'll plug later, and just thinking, man, you spend your life interviewing other people. How cool would it be for you to actually get that opportunity to tell your story? So mm. I thought, well, I'll, I'll hit you up and hopefully you say yes and you did, so I appreciate that. That's all right, mate. It's um, It's been an interesting ride the last... Uh, let's say the last six months. Um, after 23 years at Fox, I was let go. I was a uh, termed a COVID casualty. And for yes. the first time ever, really, I've, I've actually been involved in a bunch of interviews where people are interviewing me. And it's very, very different from what I've done for the last 30 years, I've got to say. Uh, I think I'm uh, a lot more comfortable on the other side of the microphone, in this instance, your side of the microphone, getting yeah. put on the spot answering questions. Um, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, so coming up with something immediately is uh, not, not always easy. Well, you do it when you're asking the question, so I'm sure we'll find a way. And one of those people that you uh, were interviewed by recently, Troy's just jumped on. He's saying good afternoon. How are you going, Troy? Uh, that was a really handy, Troy. did a lot of my research by listening to that chat, so thanks, buddy. Um, so, Andy, yeah, like you said, 23 years in sports media mm-hmm. or in Fox Sports, sports media even longer than that, you're not alone in uh, – being a COVID casualty in Fox uh, Sports. I've spoken to a few of those people in the last few weeks and it's uh, just times where we're all looking at different ways of doing things, which which is scary but also exciting. So one of the things that I really wanted to, to dive into is that you went into a world of sports television where your dad had already been a, a trailblazer and had quite a name and a reputation for being a gentleman and well-respected within the industry. What was that experience like for you when you were a youngster, like seeing your dad on TV and and doing this work? It was just very much the norm for as far back as I can recall, dad had been on TV. And and I'm quite sure that at, at a young age, 
I just thought everyone's dad must have been on TV. Uh, I I remember when dad was on TV and I'd be, I wasn't a great kid, I'll I'll admit that, and I'd be playing up at home and mum would say, I'm going to tell your father. And I'd laugh it off. Anyway, mum would go and greet dad at the car and say, the little turd was doing such and such while you were on the TV. Dad would walk into the house and say, I saw you through the television doing this and speaking like this to your mother. I'm only a young tacker and I'm thinking, holy, my goodness, this is magic. Um, So the the early memories are good ones. Uh, Interesting, it it just becomes normal and, and I never saw Dad as anyone or anything special or not certainly not more special than being a father that was and, and being my dad and that was that was his primary job um, and responsibility and he took that more seriously than he did his work I had a, a wonderful upbringing but it was different you know as a young bloke you're sitting around having a Chinese feed with the family on a Tuesday night and and uh you know, some motor racing fans might come up and ask for an autograph or they'd get the old Polaroid out. And I yeah. just, I didn't get it. You know, what, what do you want a photo with my dad for? Um, so it was very much the norm growing up. Um, as I got older and, and matured and, and started to understand sort of his position within the television industry, it, uh, it was exciting. He never once pushed me or shoved me to follow into his footsteps. I was a, uh, a loud kid. Uh, that might come as no surprise to anyone watching this. Uh, I was a loud kid. Um, I would commentate to myself, uh, not trying to be dad, just trying to entertain myself, whether it was matchbox cars, you know, in the dirt in the backyard or, you know, riding the BMX bike or whatever it may be. Um, but I, you know, over time, I, I got to appreciate and understand what he did, how he did it, and uh, it really intrigued me, the, the whole industry. Brilliant. Well, I've heard Rabs speak. Um, for those overseas, he's a, he's a well-known commentator here in Australia, mm. where he, when he was younger, he was same thing. He just commentated everything, and he used to make tracks with marbles and let them race down the hill, and he would call the race like he was calling a, a horse race. Brilliant. And he would have done a good job of it too, I would reckon, even at a young age. No doubt about that. Um, yeah, that must be some great memories. I know that's just taken me back to the same thing, like in the sand with the cars and, and talking yeah. through it. I don't know if I was commentating. Um, I'm not really sure, but definitely on the bike I was and building yeah. tracks and creating these these uh, imaginary races in my head. Yeah, great times. Yeah. Uh, I I had a wonderful childhood. I grew up in uh, northwestern Sydney in the Carlingford North Rocks area, uh, born in 1971. So it was at a period in society, um, and anyone sort of over 40, 45 will recall those days where you'd, you'd get home from school and you'd jump on your bike and you'd ride up in the summer months to the cricket field and in the winter months to the football field. Uh, or you go down the bush and, and build BMX tracks. Um, and the only rule was when the streetlights come on, you, you go home. And there was no real 
no real fears for for kids doing that and, and, and kids being kids and misbehaving and, and you know, experiencing life. Um, unfortunately, the times have changed and, and there's a lot of areas uh, and a lot of people that they're hesitant to, to let the kids go out and do that these days and I, I get it, but very fortunate to grow up when I did, where I did, and I, I look back on my childhood with just, most amazing and beautiful memories of what I consider, you know, just a, a wonderful family environment. Yeah, well, and that experience, I think, for anyone over that age would have been the same, exactly the same, as long as yeah. you're home by the streetlights and yeah. uh, and then go and go. Wherever. There was always, I don't know if you had this, but we had kind of like um, borders where we weren't allowed to go past, but, of course, those borders yeah. were pretty loose, so we, we rode as far yeah. as we could could ride. Yeah, you, you, so, you'd tell mum you went order and turned around you might have just snuck over a little bit yeah a couple of k's or 10 um yeah. which which when you think about now it's like man if we were got went missing they wouldn't oh. know where we were no. <laughs> Could have been anywhere. anyway what like you said it taught us to be kids and and have more freedom just to go and explore which i think is really cool and we we need to have more of that for sure you, you i remember listening to you and this probably was with a chat with troy where you talked about you knew from quite a young age that you you wanted to commentate and you wanted to commentate in rugby league and in boxing. So do you have any memories of like how that sort of came about? Like did you have a moment or? No, they were the two sports that uh, I fell in love with as a, as a young bloke. Um, played rugby league since age five i think with uh with saint gerard's there in uh north rocks i think i was uh basically building sandcastles at the back of the field while the others tackled i did uh, a lot of boxing as a kid up the road from where we lived was uh, a boxer very famous at the time and a guy that's gone into community caring and juvenile health by the name of trevor king uh and he was a, a wonderful gentleman from a wonderful family who knew how to fight. And he used to operate out of a, a gym uh, down in Parramatta in the PCYC. And the Parramatta Eels used to go in there from time to time uh, during the late 70s, early 80s. And, and he'd put them through the ropes. And we did a lot of training down with Trevor down at the PCYC and I've always enjoyed my boxing. I've always respected those that do box or, or any combat sport. So they were the two loves from a young age, the, the rugby league and the boxing. And if I was asked as a young man, what do you want to do? And I, I think I was asked, was be a rugby league and a boxing commentator. Well, in the 1980s, that was impossible. That only became possible in 2000, uh, no, 1995 when Foxtel started and Fox Sports started and I moved across in 1997. So all those years before, my dream was actually Mission Impossible because there was no such a job. And, you know, it's, it's really cool to be able to look back on now, even though I'm hoping my journey isn't over, to say, well, I actually was fortunate enough to fulfill my dream i did become a boxing and rugby league commentator and not a whole lot of people get to combine 
dreams, profession, uh, all into one nice little package. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> and what an absolute blessing to have had that experience. Mm. I was, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I kind of fell into different, did a PE degree because I wanted to do something to do with sport, ended up at Fox Sports. And I said this to the other day, but a, a really important moment when I had only just started at Fox Sports was an experience with you and how welcoming you were and how much, how inclusive you were for someone like myself who didn't really know what they were doing, new to TV. And, and mm. that was such a really important moment for me. And that's, to me, that's, speaks volumes for how you show up when you're on screen, when you're just in general conversation with people. So how did you get to that point where that's how you operated? Was that something you all the way through childhood or is it just were a natural thing that you, that you sort of want to have people feeling at ease in the situation? How did that all come about? I think probably to be all honesty, it's the, values that I grew up with, courtesy of my parents, um, honesty, loyalty, and being yourself. Dad was really big on that, uh, be yourself. And that's in a professional and personal environment. Uh, you are not going to please everyone with your personality, with your delivery, with your likes, your dislikes. You're not going to please everyone in any aspect of life. Um, so instead of doing a disservice to yourself, I was taught just to be yourself. Uh, and then people can make their own judgment and that's out of your control. Now, really easy to say. Uh, sounds super easy, almost silly to say that. And even to this day at 49 years of age, I still allow negativity and people's negativity far too much uh, room in my head. Um, I, you know, you, you want everyone to like you and you want everyone to appreciate you. And I, I still let the, the shit, pardon the language, rattle around in my head. Um, yeah. But we're not going to please everyone all the time. Um, but honesty, loyalty, uh, and, and respect to others. And look, I'm the type of guy that's probably in the minority in uh, in the media industry. I am more at home in thongs, shorts and a T-shirt at the local pub having a few beers in the public bar with the boys uh, than I am getting dressed up to go to the Dally M medal. Um, yeah. That's just me. And... My judgment on a friend or someone I meet isn't based on what you do, what you can do for me, how much money you make, where you stand, you know, socioeconomically. You're either yeah. a good bloke or a bad bloke. And that that actually over the years has matured into I don't care if you're black or white or Asian. I don't care if you're gay or straight. I don't care what football team you go for. I have absolutely no discrimination at all in my life about anything that anyone does. To me, it is really, really clear you're either a good bloke or you're not. If you're a good bloke, I want something to do with you. If you're not a good bloke, piss off. Yeah, I love it a lot. Um, my, my mate Wade, he's just uh, weighed in. Um, 
that was directed at me. I imagine, Wadey, that I still don't know what I'm doing. That's a good point, mate. I'm getting there, though, buddy. Wadey, I'll jump in on that. I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up either, mate. <laughs> at the moment, I haven't grown up. I'm just growing out. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. What you said there, I think, really, to me, is something that I noticed whenever I was watching you interview people is that you had this ability to build that relationship with yeah. people like consistently and in the media where you know there's a lot of people who don't see eye to eye but you had that ability to to ask tough questions to call it as you saw it but still like you could tell when the interview finished and and the smiles and the connection that you just had an amazing connection with all of these people so tell me about how you were and are able to build trust really quickly with people in that space, particularly when you've got all sorts of different, like you said, backgrounds, but also personalities? Again, it's about the way I treat people, and that's with um, loyalty, respect, and honesty, and, and absolute honesty. And that's not being a professional, that's being personal. A little side note, uh, over the last two years, I got a phone call from one of the bosses at work who said to me, your relationship with players is too good, um, they're too comfortable with you and they're, they're not going to express themselves the way we want. And I thought, what on earth are you talking about? It is, it is singularly the most stupid comment from a boss <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. Anyone in the media is taught asked and pleaded to create relationships, to create a level of comfortability with whoever they may be talking to because the end result of creating that relationship and that level of comfortability is you are then able to extract the best out of them in a situation that they might not be overly comfortable with. And over the years, I've, I've had a you know, I don't know how many interviews there are and I've tried to guesstimate at different stages and there's probably in excess of 50,000. Yeah, at least. Um, and a lot of them, you know, a fair share have been unwilling participants. Um, my ability, I think, I think was to be able to extract a level of trust and calmness and then, you know, the best verbally that, the, the talent, the player, the coach, you know, whatever it may be, was able to give, I was able to bring out and am able to bring out the very best in someone because they're relaxed and they're calm. But that that's something that professionally took a lot of years to build up. I was telling you on the phone the other day, um, I, I didn't have a lot of uh, professional goals, professional values, in terms of what I wanted to achieve. But I wanted to be a professional. Um, I wanted to be the best version of myself on screen every week. Um, and I wanted to be reliable. And for me, that meant being, and I'm not going to say every time, but I'm going to say nine times out of ten, being the first one there at a rugby league game or a boxing event and being the last one to leave. 
And if being the last one to leave means staying around for half an hour or an hour or two hours after the game and having a chat, having a beer in the dressing rooms, well, that's what I'd do. And I'd, I'd sit down and talk with the players or the coaches or the trainers. So having me around for these rugby league players wasn't a surprise. It wasn't something that created a caution or a hesitancy. They felt relaxed and comfortable with me. I would always be at the ground early. I would always be there to watch the under-20s or the under-18s or the under-16s. So I knew who was coming through. And when these young men would make their debut, they too had seen me for the last two years. They too had spoken to me for the last two years. And I knew as much about them as I did about, you know, the Australian captain. Again, they were comfortable around me. Takes a long time. And it certainly wasn't a chore because I enjoyed it. Um, But the, the end result was, you know, being able to, conduct some wonderful interviews with a, with a level of trust that was not only enjoyable for me and the talent, but most importantly, it was enjoyable for the person and people watching at home. And the one thing I constantly reminded myself of every time I was working and preparing to work We all have good days and we all have bad days. We all have concerns, we have issues, we have worries, whether they're financial, personal, professional, health, whatever. And none of us always know when someone's having a tough day. My job, the way I saw it, and and this is just me and others may disagree, and that's cool because this is what I believe. My job, whether it was for an hour a week or 10 hours a week, was you're letting me into your lounge room to watch the TV. My job was to take your mind off the day-to-day issues and hassles that you're experiencing, whether it was one of my bad jokes, whether it was uh, the way I smiled, the way I conducted myself. It might have been a fact, a story that I told of entertainment I would like to think I was able to help you forget about your day-to-day issues in some way, shape or form to make your week just a little bit better. Love it. And, of course, you couldn't see into their living room what your dad told you, but... uh, No, unfortunately, that would have been interesting, though, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yep. So... I imagine having built those relationships, like you said, some from some of these um, athletes from a really young age, you would have also had moments where you were interviewing people where it was about some of these really dark moments yeah. or the bad days that they were having. <laughs> so could you recall one of those that really took you aback and you, and you weren't ready to hear what, what you heard when you asked a question? Off the top of my head, I can come up with two instances um, <clears throat> that got me emotional, uh, surprised me for different reasons. Uh, one of them was a night at Penrith, and there was a there is was a young footballer by the name of James Seguiaro, 
and James has uh, family lineage coming out of PNG. James had just lost his father and had done a, a mercy trip to PNG um, for the farewell, for the funeral, returned early back into Sydney and played, I'm going to say, the day, like he arrived back into the country in the afternoon on a Sunday and then played on the Monday night. And it was a thrilling game and he ended up the difference. Wow. Um, and to get caught up in the emotion, there were, I walk onto the field after the game and start doing interviews. And it's very much me wandering around these 34 players trying to catch someone's eye and do an interview. Um, I ended up, I don't know how, with James Seguiaro. And it wasn't until 15 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds into the interview that it twigged what he had been through in the last week. And he was getting uh, a little caught up and he, he just put his hand, and it might have been on my hip or my leg, and that was enough for him just to feel a little bit of comfort. So I put my hand on his hand um, and straight away he was able to calm down and I finished the interview by saying, uh, James, you, you, you played well for your coach tonight, but more importantly, uh, you showed us what type of person you are and you made your family proud, uh, your level, the level of respect that, that we they have for you, we have for you and the way you've conducted yourself has been exceptional. And please know that on behalf of myself and the Fox Sports team and the rugby league community, that we are thinking about you, we are with you and we admire you. And by this stage, poor old Chico, the, the, the tears had, had, had started. And I didn't know James know me, you know, really on a personal level from a bar of soap. And he had far more important things on his mind, but we stood there and chatted for five minutes after the cameras went off. Um, not about anything in particular, but he was comfortable enough to sit there and or stand there on the field and talk to me because he was just in a little little bubble of comfort. Um, and I took great great pride in that uh, as a professional, but also as a person, because that's the type of thing I would have liked to have heard uh, from someone. The other night that got emotional, um, and it's, prob it's probably far more easily recognisable and memorable for the wrong reasons, was the night poor Alex McKinnon uh, ended up in a... Uh, how do I turn this? Uh he ended, he's ended up in a wheelchair, yeah, a, a rugby league tackle gone wrong, gone horribly wrong. I was on the sideline and it happened just before half time. And my duty on the sideline was very easy. Uh, I reported to Fox Sports viewers interchange, injuries, maybe some news, maybe a theory, 
maybe a stat, but but it was injury based and 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 allowing our viewers the opportunity of being first to know if something happens. Just before halftime, Alex was tackled. There was immediate concern for him and he was taken from the field and down the tunnel at Olympic Park and into the dressing rooms. And I was halfway down the tunnel when he came off and immediately realised there was a significant issue. And we're not talking... uh, I realised it wasn't a rugby league injury, as in... Uh, a broken finger or, or a bad taped up and back out there in a second. This is going to be something a lot more serious. That's right. And as I was walking back up the tunnel, I carried the microphone wherever I went, just in case. I'm walking back up onto the field and I haven't had time to digest or to figure out what I'm going to say and the commentators threw down to me, let's go down to Andy Raymond, who's just walking out of the tunnel now. What's the story with Alex McKinnon or what's the latest? So in a, a split second, I've got to come up with something. Now, any of the any and every of these players have got brothers, sisters girlfriends, nieces, nephews, mums, dads, family, friends, all watching. And I've got a responsibility to my uh, employer to deliver news first and to do what they ask of me. But I also felt a personal responsibility of this is unfair. So what I said was Alex is uh, along the lines of Alex has been taken into the dressing room where the door has been shut. At this point in time, I'm going to the dressing room. He's got a lot of very good medical people around him and all the care in the world is being shown. When we know more, I will interject into the commentary and I'll get back to you and let you know before anyone else. And I left it there. And that gave me the opportunity to then reassess and figure out where I was going with this because I, and I'm not looking back and saying, well, I knew that that's not the point of this exercise, but I feared immediately it was significant. And so I would say three or four times for the remainder of the broadcast, under the boss's urgings, I might say, they would cross back down to me uh, about what Alex's condition is and what what are they saying? What are the doctors saying? Well, my spool basically didn't change. Uh, It evolved a little bit and expanded a little bit, and I would say things like, uh, out of respect to Alex's family who might be watching or the loved ones who are watching on this Monday night, the door is still shut in the dressing room, so there is no further information. And I kept going and going, (coughs) pardon me, almost at nauseam with that, Um, without saying anything, without revealing the facts, without revealing the significance and enormity of it, 
um, but also try to, you know, not shirk my duties. I just, I just felt it was far too personal for Andy Raymond or anyone else to be saying, hey, I've just been listening through the, through the dressing room door and they're talking about spinal surgery or they're talking about no feeling in his limbs. I just didn't see any need or any place for that. And look, I got um, I got a six out of ten us kicking for that, uh, which I was filthy at. I've got to say, and I actually yeah, wow. on the, on on the rare occasion that I stuck up for myself, uh, I fired back and told the boss exactly what I thought and, and exactly what I thought my duty of care was. But before the blow up, I actually walked out of Olympic Park that night very proud of myself. Uh, and proud of myself for doing the, or what I consider the, the right thing, uh, the appropriate Absolutely. thing, the honest thing. In the years since, uh, the months and the years since, um, members of Alex's family have reached out. Alex and I have spoken. Um, Wayne Bennett reached out a couple of weeks later. He was the coach of Alex that night. And every person to a man and to a woman has said thank you. Thank you for treating um, that incident with, you know, the respect and, and dignity it deserved. And, and when people are appreciative of my efforts, um, yeah, that, that puts a smile on my face. But I was emotional walking out of there that night. I was proud of myself. Um, but I was I was a wreck because I knew exactly what had happened, um, and I knew what was to follow, and that, you know, that just horrible, mate. I, I can't even all these years later, and I don't know how long ago it was, but all these years later, it it's it still horrifies me, and I can still see the look in Alex's eyes as he was carried from the field right past me. <laughs> um, I just got tingles through like both of that, both of those stories mm. because I think what like when you were talking about um, James Segiaro, like to be able to for you to be able to in that space for him and actually be there comforting him at a time yeah. where he's having to speak, like wow, like th this to me like this explains m as much or more about your ability to have that relationship, players and. Mm than anything else because it's that no matter what's going on for them, you're able to have them feel comfortable. And, uh, yeah, wow, what an amazing experience. So, so yeah, really challenging. But also I imagine, like, because you mentioned the emotion, but I felt that emotion I'm sure other yeah. people would as well, is like like that must also just bring so much joy and satisfaction that you are able to do that for people. Sorry, the boss is just bringing in a, a drink for me. Good work, boss. Um, Andy, Shane's weighed in with a, an appropriate comment because this leads me in nicely to something I wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, chip off the old, old block and uh, integrity and Thank care you, coming Dad. through. Um, Shane's a massive motorsport fan uh, and bikes fan. He would have listened to... Uh, to your old man plenty of times. Uh, that was Sunday afternoon for us, wasn't it? I mean, would have been a different experience for you. You were probably often at the track. Yeah. But I also know that 
coming through in sports media when your dad is someone so well respected and, and revered in many places that that must have been massively challenging where when you initially go in you're not Andy Raymond you're Mike Raymond's son so yeah. talk to me about how challenging that was and how difficult it was for you to forge your own path I still see myself as Mike Raymond's son to be honest I, I wear that as a, a badge of pride um I got my start in the media because my dad was Mike Raymond. That it, it's as simple as that. He was um, in charge of motorsport at Channel 7 in Sydney. And for a while there, he was in charge of sport at Channel 7 in Sydney, or sports. And I got my start because of my dad, and I've, I've never shied away from that. What followed was, whilst the start was easy, uh, because I, I, I got it, you know, because of him, proving myself was probably a little bit harder. And now I've spoken to guys like Eric Growth, Jr., like Matt Rogers, Scott Sattler, all with famous fathers that had walked the path before them. And, yeah, your starters easier, but proving yourself probably a little more difficult because you are a very easy target. And I was aware of that. And I adjusted accordingly. You know, as an 18, 19-year-old bloke who was uh, a bit of a hothead, I admit, um, I would hear the snickers and the comments as I walked up a hallway or walked to get lunch. Um, I had a feeling of who was on my side and who wasn't on my side very, very early. But I had a, a core group of guys at Channel 7 and the sports department that were experienced, were professional, were very good, very good at what they did, but also better blokes and willing to assist a young bloke that wanted to learn and wanted to know more and wanted to progress. I think for anyone watching this that has ever had, you know, a couple of work experience kids in an environment around them, a lot of work experience kids wander in at 9.01, sit in the corner, pick their nose and leave at 4.59. Yeah. Um, they don't ask questions. They sometimes don't uh, show a great deal of energy, excitement. Uh, they're there for a week off school. When I did work experience at Channel 7, I was first one into the office, last one to leave, and they were sick to death of me asking bloody questions. Why did you do this? Why did you... Why didn't you do it that way? How come that goes before that? And how come you did it this way? It's, this was a, a wonderful new world that I knew absolutely nothing about. And I wanted to know about it. I And I had some wonderful teachers that, um, geez, I was lucky. I, I, I really was right time right place, and, and they're not necessarily guys um, 
with maybe huge public name recognition, but they are guys that are as respected as anyone within the industry and have been for a long, long time. And they had a level of trust in me um, and, and, and would, would go out of their way to help me. And, and I mean seriously, go out of their way and give me the time. They would pat me on the back to a degree if I did something well. And it's always lovely getting a pat on the back, despite how old, how young, how experienced, how inexperienced we are. But yep. they would give me an old school ass kicking when uh, when I didn't do the right thing, whether whether it was a personality trait, whether it was something professional, whether I was just out of line. And they would do it in a manner that I knew what I'd done wrong, why I'd done it, and not to do it again. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a tough guy kick up the ass. It wasn't for their shits and giggles. It was just um, it was part of the learning curve and the steepest part of the learning curve. And in that respect, I was the luckiest guy in Australian television to have the teachers that I had. Brilliant. Um, and it's so fantastic that you've actually had that awareness of how impactful they were because I think so often in our life these people come along that give us such powerful guidance and and it is important for us to let them know that I'm thinking about now my own experience I was such I was so blessed to have been coached in football by two internationals one of them mm. weighty who's uh, on now and just to be in that space is is amazing and as oh, you described give, give that feedback of like encouragement when you need it but also a, a good old-fashioned ass kicking in in a way that you yeah. still felt like that they their heart was in it it's it's still a way of actually being able to just say mm. well you didn't do the right thing there but sometimes we need to have those boundaries of like well you've gone past that so i, I yeah. really like it heard that and to me what really shone through there is exact that was the experience that i had with you when i was starting at fox sports is is that you passed on that learned knowledge and and had me feeling comfortable in that space in a, in a world where I'm suddenly experiencing all these like people on TV and mm. and athletes and everything and feeling really uncomfortable and then and you just being able to make that so I was, I'd, yeah I'm blessed to have had that experience with you as well um, yeah, yeah Troy absolutely emotional stuff great stories um, as Andy talks about he loves telling stories and you can see that really shining out now and um yeah cheers way ultimate pro absolutely um <laughs> and yeah the 65 second lap that was one of those punishments we got from waity if things weren't going well waity i won't share your uh joke awful joke that you've there but for those who are watching it can look at it in the comments but that's a um that's a cracker but also awful at the same time so yeah andy shares your love of uh of the poor jokes um, so you touched on something uh, really important when you talked about your you in that space where you're you're allowing people to tell their story and and we talked just before we came on air about you know the the customer experience um, the the person we both connected with Ree who who commented yeah. on the, the post um, I worked a lot with her around the customer service and we're talking about even the people that call in to complain they just wanted to be heard so i love how now you're doing that 
in your podcast, allowing people to tell their story and to be heard. And there's some cracking yarns in there for anyone who wants a good story. But also now you're, you're heading out of that territory and just talk, talking to people about great stories. So what has that experience been for you and to allow them to hear that space? And what sort of feedback have you got from them where they've come back to you like full of appreciation for having that space to tell their story? Uh, the, the feedback's been really positive and, and a bit we're two months into a podcast and you've got to play to your strengths and you've got to play to your contacts and I guess your uh, your supporter base. So it's been very heavy on, on rugby league at the moment uh, and it's it's been exciting rugby league and most of the guests have been rugby league either past or present. Uh, it will evolve. Uh, all sports are welcomed. I'm actually more than anything else looking forward to non-sporting stories. Everyone has a story to tell. Yeah. How they tell that and how you extract that is what differentiates an average podcast or listen to something really special. So many interviewers in any medium over the years want to be the star of the show. And that could not be any more wrong in any bigger way. The star of any interview is the guest. Otherwise, because, because they are the guest. You yeah. want their story. The greatest question, and I got told this to me by a gentleman called John Brady, one of uh, one of my teachers, uh, unofficial teachers, but mentors, Channel 7 from 1993 to 1997. John went on to become a media, a V media guy for the ARL during the NR, uh, Super League War. John said the greatest question you can ask in an interview is why? One word, one word question. And it didn't make sense to me for such a long time. And then it clicked. Uh, you ask someone why, you, you ask them a question. Um, you get Wayne Bennett, who's notoriously light on, on words after a game. You say, Wayne, well, uh, are you happy with the win? What pleased you the most? And old Clint Eastwood might say, yeah, of course I'm happy with the win. Uh, yeah, we got the two points and uh, played well. What do you follow <laughs> that up with? Why? Beautiful. And old Clint has to go, oh, shit. Well, uh, uh, why? Because Adam Reynolds' kicking game was on and John Sutton did this and, and Cameron Murray did this. All of a sudden, you have been able to tap into him in a very polite and respectful way for a one-word question. Why? Um, it gets you a lot more personal response than... You'd actually think it's um, it's cool, and I'm looking forward to doing a range of different stories 
with people with a story to tell. Yeah, I love that. And you talked about that um, when we when we chatted yesterday around like, yeah, that that telling story. And I'm a massive believer in that, is that every single human has a story to tell and the importance of actually all of us to explore that and think about what that is and then finding a space. It doesn't have to be on a podcast. It can be just having a space where you can yeah. reflect on your story and then have somewhere to tell it because it's just so it's it's healing it's so healing to be able to talk about what you've been through the ups the downs and everything in between so yeah i love that um for me for me this afternoon it could be um it could be on a stool in the public bar at the parisian beach hotel i might, I might get six or eight deep and start telling stories <laughs> i love it um we might not share some of those stories here but uh, no, I'll take you up on once the borders uh, open up. Uh, Jason speaks a lot about you, Andy, with the Alex situation, media second loved ones. Media second loved ones I, first I, in that situation. I appreciate that, Jason. That's, um, you know, for you to be watching and, and interested enough to, to listen to what I say, mate, that's, that's enormous for you to, to actually, uh, you know, put it into words, really appreciate it. To me, uh, it's just common decency, though. I don't, I, and I don't think there's a lot of that in the media. Uh, a lot of times, um, to me, it's just common decency. It's going back to those family values all those years ago about loyalty, honesty, um, and, and being yourself. And uh, I, I hope, I hope that's still able to shine through. You, you might. Not always like what I say, but you know what I do say, uh, I believe in and I, I mean it, and it's the real me. Yeah, 100%. Um, I, of all the yarns that I've listened to you, I love the one with Dick Johnson. And what it, yeah, I'm just like going over it in my head, but what it's drawn me to is I'm not sure if you've listened to the Howie games at all. He, he interviews Craig Lowndes and he talks about, the year he won Bathurst, the, um, the year that uh, Peter Brock died. And he said, yeah. um, he said, I'm not a spiritual person, but he said everything in that race unfolded to allow us to win. Everything just fell into place. And he said, I don't know how to describe it, but it was like Brock was in there in the car with yeah. me. And like that just, man, I sobbed. Like I don't know what it was yeah. about that and – but it just it hit me. So, what the, has that been moment been for you? Where it's been a real euphoric story that's just given you so much joy hearing from someone else on the other side of the mic. Um, because there's been so many over the years, it, it really is difficult to um, nominate just one i've recently put up only earlier this week uh, a three-part interview with rugby league immortal mal meninga um and he is originally from the Vanuatu group of islands in the south tennessee and for many years and and generations mal and the family thought you know, they were 
genuinely Aboriginal descent from the mainland. And Mal talked us through his great-grandfather jumping off the rocks to swim out to the boat at South Tanner Island to come to Australia during a period where there was blackbirding, which is, uh, you know, the mainland going over to the islands, rustling up uh, the islander men to come over to Australia and work for nothing, basically, um, yeah. you know, in the, in the sugarcane fields in North Queensland. Then it was the white Australia policy at the turn of the century, in, you know, I think 1901, and Mal's great-grandfather avoided the white Australia policy um, and, and stayed in Australia, met an Irish woman and uh, Isabel, uh, yeah, Isabel, and they, um, and the Meninga family was born. It was just different from talking racing laps, boxing rounds or rugby league games. It was, there was a level of emotion in it. There was real authenticity um, and it showed the character of Mal Meninga. Uh, Daily Cherry Evans is another one. And uh, we did him uh, six, eight weeks ago. And a guy that polarises, I mean, he really does. Um, you either love him or hate him. Daily Cherry Evans is a rugby league footballer. And the interview I've, I did with Daly, he let his guard down because he was so comfortable. And it is, you cannot believe it's him. It is so different from the cliched uh, answers, responses, media training that he's all been through. He never gives up anything of himself in interviews. This is absolutely mind-blowing. So Brilliant. they're two really good examples of where I'm not looking to exploit my guests. I'm looking to enhance my guests and give them the best possible opportunity of, te of, of them telling the story. And they're two that I'm really, really proud of. Uh, I love the Dick Johnson interview. In fact, I just loved catching up with Dick after all these years. Um, I saw him at, uh, at Dad's funeral in November last year for the first time in must be 50, 20 years. Um, I, I didn't get the chance on the day to, to, to say g'day. So uh, we travelled down to uh, the Gold Coast and saw Dick. I love the story. I loved his stories. Um, again, I love his, just how authentic he is. But every, every interview I've done leaves a, leaves a little mark for, for one reason or another. Oh, the, the memory just came back of that interview and like Shane said, DJR, DJR is a legend um, yeah. and we'll make sure you get that link, Shane. It's a cracker. It was the story about the rock at Bathurst and and like for one of his darkest moments and yet he just wants to meet those people and thank them because yeah. of the outpouring of emotion from the country when he went through that and how – he said that actually made my whole career, my life really was that experience. And I think like your, your ability to, in those interviews, to talk about people's difficult moments, but how much of a blessing they turn out to be. Really interesting walking into the uh, Dick Johnson uh, factory 
uh, down on the Gold Coast, and there's uh, you know a couple of falcons there and an older falcon there and racing suits and helmets, and then in a glass case there's the Rock, the Bathurst <laughs> Rock, is sitting there in the foyer of Dick Johnson Racing. I said, mate, I said, you've been drinking too much. Why do you even want to look at that for? And he said, it made me. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I'm not sure if you saw there before, Troy. Comment from Troy. Love the ending of the Dick Johnson interview. Nice teaser, Troy. Um, those will have to go watch it. We'll put the link below as well. And, uh, yeah, interesting. That's a great memory, Shane. And Mike's coverage of it was special too. Oh, man, I can vividly remember sitting there in front of the TV. We, that was back in the days when you wouldn't sit in and watch the whole of Bathurst, or well, most of it anyway. And, um, and that memory is just etched into my head of that whole drama and, um, and his disbelief at how it all, all unfolded. Yeah. Um, do yourself a favour and go check that one out because, uh, yeah, cracking story. So... Andy, what advice would you give someone who knows within them that they have a story that they want to tell, that they maybe aren't in a privileged position like you and I where we actually get to be speaking to people, interviewing them, be on the receiving end of interviews? What would you suggest to them to go and find a space and to be able to have the courage maybe to go and and do that and, and find an an avenue to actually tell their story. Yeah, that, that's that's a, a, a difficult one, isn't it, Hawk? Because, you know, one person's story might be catered towards a podcast or a different media, um, media type. Uh, you know, that, that's why there's, there's still 14 different sections in the newspaper that you pick up on a Sunday. Uh, because most of the stories don't belong in the other 13. So they've, they've yeah. got to separate them. So not every story uh, or every one's story is appropriate, applicable and of interest to, you know, all 14 pieces of, of the newspaper. Um, if, you know, if you do have a story to tell, um, I think probably the start is sitting down one night with, with a coffee or a coley and uh, jumping onto the computer and not in long form, but just in bullet points, little memories you have. Yeah. Just, start jotting, just start jotting things down. And eventually that will turn into, you know, it'll go from two or three bullet points to 14 to 46. And then you'll remember something and, you know, there'll be a spin-off from that story and or a link from that story to, to that story, which is, you know, something I tried to do and, and think I did achieve uh, over my rugby league commentary career because of the internet and because technology is so easily available now, we have all got at our fingertips on our iPad, iPhone or computer, all the stats. So you don't need me as a commentator to read out the stats because if you cared about it, you would know already. So what yeah. I did, I would find two stats or three stats and figure out the link between or if there wasn't a link between, why wasn't there a link between and create a 15, 20-second story on that. 
yes, you're still revealing the stats, but you're revealing the stats in a way that actually makes more sense than anything else. And I'll try and give you a quick example. Uh, let's say the Parramatta Reels missed the less, the least amount of tackles uh, all season than any other club. They miss less tackles than anyone else, yet they concede more points than anyone else. Two wonderful stats. I would come to the conclusion and say it's something like this. Uh, the Parramatta Reels, yeah, it's fabulous. They're missing the least amount of tackles of anyone all year, but they're conceding the most amount of points. Well, that points towards me, to me, is the fact they're missing the tackles that are the important ones. They're missing the try-saving tackles. So trying to link things together, little story, makes sense. God, if only the Parramatta would miss less tackles, I'd be a really happy guy. <laughs> While you were saying that, I was just shaking my head inside going, oh, mate, it's just, isn't that the story? Anyway, we don't, we don't us paratragics don't need to um, pour our hearts out about that now. We can save that for another time, perhaps yeah. up at the, uh, at the hotel over a beer. Um, I, lo I love that. And you're so right, taking the time just to write down your story and you will be able to link the elements yourself yeah. about story because you know them so intimately um yep. fantastic uh troy's with you on that one love it um the thing i wanted to to sort of wrap up on andy was something you said um when you talked to troy in that interview on the the Paracave podcast is that you are not there to actually tell your story you're not even there really to speak to the tv you're there as almost like the channel that other people's stories can flow through to the audience yep. and i think that's that probably sums up really well not only how you operated on tv but also how you operate mm. in life your ability to actually give people that space and be able to feel comfortable to tell their story or just be comfortable just doing whatever they're doing. So I, like, like I said, from my own personal experience, that was a really um, important moment for me at a, yeah. at a time where I was sort of making my way and I appreciate it. And, and I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, for you to be able to tell your story today and, um, and open up about some of those really emotional moments. So thank you so much, mate. My pleasure, Hawk, any, absolutely any time. Um, and just to, to those of you that uh, that have been watching for the, the last 60 minutes, um, thank you. And I, I, I do mean that sincerely, and I hope you, you realise that by now. Uh, I know, you know, none of us are, are everyone's cup of tea. Uh, you've probably yelled at me and thrown bits of paper or cheesels at the TV when you've seen me over the years. Um, but thanks for thanks for showing an interest and and hanging around. Thanks for supporting Ian Hawkins, who's a wonderful young bloke, uh, doing amazing young things. And it's been an absolute pleasure coming to you and speaking with with Hawk today. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, we've scratched the surface on a lot of issues, and uh, got a big smile on my face. So thank you, and have a good weekend, everyone. And and if you're having a little bet tomorrow, don't forget to back Pikey in the last. You know that. 
<laughs> Very good. Uh, Wadey says, great chat. And Troy, uh, yeah, also great chat. Cheers for all those Thank people. You, on. Oh, Jeremy Angus weighing in late. You're welcome, Jez. Hey, Jez. Good to see you too. Um, cheers, Annie. That was awesome and, um, and a great way to finish. Thanks, everyone, for, as Andy said, for tuning in. Um, we'll see you next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.